Premier Christian Newscast. Some progress has been made, but not nearly enough. The church will follow not just the science, but our faith, both of which call us to work for climate justice. Those are the words of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, as he announced recently that the Church of England's multi-billion pound fund would no longer invest in any fossil fuel companies. For years, the church had tried to use their position as shareholders in companies including BP, Shell, Total and ExxonMobil to nudge them towards cutting emissions and changing strategies. But now they had given up, concluding the oil and gas firms were not aligned with the Paris climate deal's aim to limit temperature rises to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Will this divestment make any difference though, or is it just virtue signalling? What role should the church play in campaigning around the climate crisis, if any? Is it hypocritical to throw stones at these companies when the church itself is struggling to decarbonise and hit its own net zero targets? I'm Tim Wyatt, and this is the Premier Christian Newscast. This week, I'm joined by Megan Cornwell and Emma Fowle from the Premier Christianity team to talk about the C of E's big fossil fuel divestment plan and what place climate activism has in today's church. Great. Well, thanks for joining us, Emma and Megan, as always. Um, the kind of peg for this discussion was was really the big news that came out of the church. Well, one of the many big news stories came out of the Church of England last week, which was that their two big investment funds, um, which control, I think, upwards of kind of 10, 11, 12 billion pounds of investments, announced that they're going to take all of their money out of fossil fuel companies because they weren't doing enough to reduce emissions. Um uh, Justin Wellwood, the Archbishop of Canterbury, said this, um, we have long urged companies to take climate change seriously and specifically to align with the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement and pursue efforts to limit the rise in temperature to 1.5 degrees C. In practical terms, this means plot phasing out fossil fuels, investing in renewables and plotting a credible path to a net zero world. Some progress has been made, but not nearly enough. The church will follow not just the science, but our faith, both of which call us to work for climate justice. So the church now no, no longer invests any of its billions in in um in fossil fuels. Does that feel significant? Does that feel like it matters or is this kind of slightly boring internal church news to you? I personally think it's really important. Um I think the church has a moral duty to care for the poor and when we know that climate change is affecting the poorest most in in the world um, I, I think the church can't hold that view and then also be investing billions of their endowment funds into companies that extract fossil fuels. It just doesn't make any sense. So for me, it's massively uh, important news that I think we should all be celebrating. Where do you stand, Emma? Does it feel like it makes a difference? Does it matter to you? Yeah, I, I agree with Megan. I think, you know, where, where we can, the church should lead by example, surely. And, um, you know, there, there's been a massive increase in recent years of people wanting to know that 
um, the organisations that they purchase things, the banks that they put their money with, the shops that they use, you know, do actually um, have integrity and do the right thing when it comes to people and the planet. So if you know if, if people are if people care about that thing and in, in, in wider society we care about that thing and we're we're now measuring it more and making choices around what we consume um, around that thing, then the I agree with Megan. The church has a, a moral responsibility to to lead by example, and I'm really pleased that the Church of England, which is one of the biggest um, faith based organisations with the biggest set bits of money, um, is choosing to do the right thing with its cash. Mm. It's kind it's kind of comes as part of a trend. You guys would be aware that lots of other churches and kind of Christian bodies have been doing similar kind of divestment from fossil fuels in in recent years. Um, the Quakers did this several years ago. Has a the United Reformed Church, the Church of Ireland, uh, I think the Church of Scotland and the Methodists have kind of announced that they plan to pull out from fossil fuel companies if they don't kind of align their their um, spending and their um, emissions with the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, so it's clearly kind of coming as part of a trend, this kind of a, a growing movement. What really interests me about this story in particular is that there's been a long been a quite internal argument within the Church of England because climate activists have been kind of calling for this kind of divestment for a long time, at least 10 years, as far as I'm aware. But the church has previously always resisted because it argued that it could make more difference by remaining a shareholder. And that gives it a voice to lobby, you know, Shell and BP and all these other companies for reforms. And they always said, if you sell your investment... That's a one-time thing. It makes a statement and then Shell just goes on and does what it wants to do. Whereas if we're an investor, we can then collaborate with other like-minded investors who are concerned about climate change and maybe try and shape the future of how Shell kind of spends its money and, and that kind of thing. Um, do you think that ultimately, you know, their decision to divest eventually has shown that their efforts to kind of argue from within have failed? And that was always a kind of uh, a vain hope. Yeah, I mean, I think they've obviously come to a crossroads with this, haven't they? Because um, they have, as you said, they have been working with those big um, polluting companies for the last decade, and the national investing, uh, the national investing bodies set out criteria for those companies to uh, to follow and to adhere to in order for that investment to carry on. And what they've found is that they're just not they're not making the progress that they. Uh, the Church of England thinks is necessary in order to hit those climate goals set in um, COP21. So I think I think it's great that they've acknowledged that um, and realised that, that they can't carry on doing the same thing that they've been doing and expect a different outcome. So I think that's I think it's positive that they've made that that it's a fairly drastic step, really, to say we're, we're pulling out all our all of our money. And because we're talking about big sums of money here, you know, They've got 10 billion, over 10 billion in the um, church commissioners uh, endowment fund and then 3.2 billion in the pension fund. So it's a lot of money. Mm. Yeah, and, and money really speaks, doesn't it? And, it, and, and companies like Shell need um, investors. Uh, it's the same reason why people choose to bank with ethical banks that, that don't invest in, in things like tobacco companies or fossil fuels or those types of things. If you know, there, there does become a point where you have to question, can we change this from within or do we try to, I don't know if cutting off the source is the, you know, the right argument because arguably that's, you know, it is a lot of money, but is it a lot of money to shell? Um, and, you know, can they replace that money from elsewhere? Probably. But still, it still sends a very strong signal. And I, I think at this stage in the game, 10 years on, 
um, from you know people being asking from this and the the massive increase in noise of, of protests around um, investment in oil over recent years. I, I don't think the Church of England really had any choice at this stage. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right, Emma. That you know their, their policy of engagement and kind of negotiation and change from within is clearly their preference. I think I don't think the Church of England wants to be a kind of radical prophetic voice on this issue. In but but if they have, as you say, Megan, they have a policy about you know what they will and won't invest in according to to climate emissions, and and that has already led them to pull out of investments in coal and in tar sands several years ago, which are also kind of fossil fuels, but they're even worse than oil and gas are in terms of greenhouse gases. I think they've got to the point where you, if you keep saying to Shell, you really must do, you know, we shouldn't pick on Shell and the other oil and gas companies, you really must do better. And if you don't, if you don't, we might think about pulling out, ultimately, that's an empty threat if you don't actually follow through. And clearly, they've decided after many years that that d- despite their their efforts um, they're not able to persuade these fossil fuel companies to kind of change to change track um i was just going to say the naughty step approach obviously hasn't been working <laughs> clearly not and as parents know obviously you have to follow through on your threats otherwise kids will very quickly wise up that you're a soft touch um but i think it is a shame that the kind of you know the engagement argument if you want to call it that has failed because ultimately, if we are going to kind of save the world from catastrophic climate change, we do need big energy companies, oil and gas companies to change their minds and to spend way more money on building wind farms and solar panels than digging more oil and gas out of the earth. And if, yeah, so it does sadden me that the church hasn't been able to make the kind of engagement tactic work. But I agree with you guys that ultimately they did need to do this step if they concluded that that the companies just weren't amenable to to negotiation on that. Yeah, and talking about kind of, you know, we can do more good by keeping it, keeping our money there. Well, you know, there are arguably lots of other good things they can do with that very considerable amount of money. There are, there are tons nowadays of ethical investment firms around that invest their money in uh, enterprises that create social good, that invest in housing for those at risk of homelessness, for example, and all sorts of things. So, you know, with that very massive chunk of money, um, you would hope that the Church of England can look after its um, pension pot and and really create some good social change if they put it in the right place. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting point as well. What I found quite interesting as well, the other kind of argument that you that the kind of church has been at odds with with the kind of Christian climate activists is is divestment as a kind of prophetic act of witness versus divestment based on kind of like ethical concerns. You know, so for example, the Church of England has made it quite clear that if any of these companies, these oil and gas companies that they've pulled out of, if they were to change their plans and realign themselves with the Paris Agreement, they would be happy to to reconsider and put money back into them. So it's not some kind of, we've decided that fossil fuels are immoral forevermore. It's more about, is this in track with Paris? Whereas I think a lot of the Christian climate activists have been calling on the church to, to, to rule out fossil fuel investment forever. Again, as, as this kind of prophetic act to say, actually, even if it's profitable, even if we think, you know, that that they, these guys are on track to, to hit 1.5 degrees, we're just not going to invest ever, 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 because we believe it's destroying the earth anyway. Yeah, I think I there are there are a growing number of people who would take that line. Um, and the longer that the church sort of holds out against that, the, the more in conflict they're going to be. But, you know, the I guess the flip side of that is 
for every climate activist who really you know believes that fossil fuel is creating this great damage and we should all divest from it and it's great that the church of england has pulled out this massive chunk of money really the the petroleum company's money is coming from all of us who every day put petrol in our cars and there are still a much smaller number of people um especially if you live in a rural area like i get i do that that really have a choice over that until there is you know so so in some regards i'm a bit like well there are a lot of other things that also need to shift in order for the everyday person to be able to make better choices, especially around fossil fuel. That's the kind of the other question is that the, the response will be, well, this is just hypocritical from the church. You know, shouldn't, shouldn't the church, shouldn't Christians, you know, get their own house in order, cut the emissions down themselves before they start attacking other companies or other institutions for their own climate failures? Um, you know, I still have a petrol car, you know, still burn gas to heat my home. Um, and don't kind of necessarily go to sleep thinking I'm an evil person. Is it is it wrong, therefore, to kind of celebrate when the church applies a different standard to Shell or BP? Yeah, I mean, it, you could definitely look at this as sort of a, a case of, you know, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of someone else's. Um, but I think ultimately, the church is trying to make changes across the board. You know, it's got it's got roadmaps in place towards net zero um it it just has more challenges um because of its structure i guess and because you've got problems like grade two listed buildings that make it very difficult to um to bring in renewables and to um, install heat pumps and things like that um so it just has a few challenges in that respect but uh yeah i think you, you could definitely make the argument that um they need to get their own house in order the church of england has a target to hit net zero emissions for itself so all its church buildings or church schools you know vicarages bishops cars all that stuff to be net zero by 2030 so just seven six and a half years away very ambitious target um uh, and they're kind of as as megan says they've got a kind of roadmap to try and help parishes and dioceses kind of hit that the as far as i'm aware they don't really seem on track to to do it because it's so ambitious but I suppose it's kind of a, a, a maybe deliberately a kind of a, a spur to try and uh, make radical change nonetheless. So I guess they could say that they're trying to get their own house in order. But in the meantime, <laughs> BP and Shell and, and these other companies should do the same. Yeah, I don't think it was it's very realistic to sort of to, to do one without the other, really. It, it kind of seems very harsh to be like, oh, we're going to make sure all our buildings are net zero. Also, we've got millions of, of pounds invested in fossil fuel companies. It, it feels a little bit at odds. Um, it, with regards to the net zero target, that does seem incredibly ambitious for seven years' time. Um, I go to a church, which is not a Church of England, but we meet in a in a very old stone and slate building down here in Cornwall. It was built in the 1830s. We recently, um, five or six years ago, undertook a, a, a massive refurbishment of that building, um, which cost hundreds of thousands of pounds, got lots of grants, investigated to the best of our abilities every kind of option possible for uh, solar and you know getting it as green as possible and and the, well, there were lots of things we couldn't we could improve we improved insulation and put double glazing in and, and all those kinds of things but there were also lots of things that we were told quite plainly by companies that that had a vested interest in selling us tech that were just not suitable for our building like solar panels and underfloor heating so you know it, it does make me wonder 
what you do with some of these really, really tiny, very, very old listed buildings uh, and whether that really is realistic for them. Um, but, you know, I'd be the first to applaud any effort to get anyone, you know, every small change is, is a good change as far as I'm concerned. But it, but there, there are massive challenges for like for an institution of that size, as you say. Premier Christian Newscast. Premier Christian Newscast. You do just wonder, though, if the church could sort of redirect some of that money, you know, from the endowment fund into things like funding for some of these um, options, you know, these renewable options, because a lot of the the Times article I read the other day talked about the fact that um, the church isn't going to hit net zero is, is looking very unlikely. And that's because often churches get, you know, another when their boiler breaks down, their gas boiler breaks down or whatever, they they, they go out and, and um get quotes for all the different options and the ones that are cheapest are usually the the um the ones that aren't green so <clears throat> you know if the church could then provide um some kind of funding that that churches could apply for then that might you know help them to kind of overcome that barrier it'd be quite good to see some more creative thinking i think on on that yeah i think that's a really interesting idea megan and and yeah maybe there's a case for saying you know that money that was sitting in Shell and BP and was giving us a seat at the table to kind of fruitlessly ask them to change their minds. Actually, even, you know, even if it's only a hundred million pounds, which, you know, in the context of a company like Shell is nothing, (laughs) is minuscule, but actually a hundred million pounds across a few thousand parish churches is going to be an enormous, make an enormous difference in terms of, as you say, insulation, solar panels, heat pumps, all that stuff. Um, I want to kind of move the conversation outwards and zoom out a little bit more about the issue about climate change in general. Do you, do you think it is seen as a kind of priority issue for evangelicals, for Christians in Britain, for churchgoers? Is it seen as like one of the big things we should be thinking about? I mean, in my church, it isn't really talked about at all. <clears throat> um, I mean, because of my job, you know, we come across the, the activities of um, people like climate, uh, Christian Climate Action, and um what's that that charity what are they called something like noah's ark oh operation operation noah Noah, thank you (laughs) so we come across their work and we hear about some of the activism going on in in different kind of wings of the church but certainly in my everyday um discipleship you know my everyday church going i don't really i don't really hear much from the front certainly about that I think everyone is much more aware than they used to be now, and I think I think definitely, I think definitely the odd outliers are the people that really don't care about the climate anymore. But um, it's just such a wide spectrum, isn't it? You've got sort of people who are very very active, and like Megan said, because of the type of work we do, we hear all of the the stories about Christian climate activists and the, the clergy that are involved in protests and. Um, and all of that stuff for the average person on the street I think it's an important issue but as we were saying earlier is it an you know there's a huge difference between me choosing to 
have a green energy tariff in my house and committing to never driving a car again or flying um, to a family holiday. You know, like there, there are so many levels within it, aren't there? And I, and I do. And, and, and also, I'm very aware that within those arguments, as there are with sort of things like fair trade, there's an element of choice um, that comes with having certain means. So um, it's still the case that quite often green energy is, is more expensive. Um, so. I don't think it's always very fair to assume that everybody can afford to make the best choice when it comes to these these types of things. But there's always more that all of us can do. And it's interesting that I, I would agree with Megan. I don't think I've ever heard climate being preached on in my church or, or spoken about on the platform from the front. I, I, I don't know whether that's right or wrong, whether that... Um, but I, I do think, especially probably within the younger generation, it is becoming an issue they want to see the church involved in. And more and more, it's it's not seen as a sort of a fringy type environmental issue. It's actually seen as a human rights issue and a justice issue. Because as, as Megan said earlier, we, we are starting now to really understand that the effects of climate change, whilst they are affecting us in Europe, are often affecting the poorest communities in the world the most and catastrophically and unless the west sort of steps up and gets involved in that that injustice is is going to continue to grow i was just gonna say the development agencies have done a lot of good work i think around this to help people make those connections between um environmental um crises and justice and and poverty so i think i think we should be applauding the work that they've done um, and like Emma said, you know, it, it, it's becoming not just a justice issue, but I think also a racism issue. I think people are realising that, that, that the connections and the links go even further than that, because you're you're talking about, you know, people living in the poorest countries that usually aren't white um, and what that means to then um, for, for people in the West not to do anything about it. You know, is, it, can that be seen as as racism, you know, as well? So I think I think there's some quite interesting um, ways of looking at it. It's really interesting you guys mentioned that because I was going to ask, like, actually, it seems to me there might be a bit of an opportunity here for the church to kind of consciously lean into the issue of kind of climate activism and climate justice, because it's potentially a rare example of a kind of uh, a social issue, an ethical issue that society is also wrestling with, where actually our Christian faith, and there's pretty much broad consensus across all the different streams of Christianity, leads us in the direction that people want to go, which is let's, you know, look after the planet, let's reduce our emissions. And I feel like in so many other ethical issues, the church is at odds with society or is trying to hold people back or restrain or limit progress or say, actually, we disagree with you on that, whether that's, you know, abortion or sexuality or marriage or whatever else and so maybe there's a real opportunity to kind of say actually look the christian church is not just that kind of nagging finger of of kind of social conservatives always saying no 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 bad but actually the church can also those same christians isn't this interesting they can be at the forefront of social change you know pushing society pushing institutions to go further to go faster and 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 making the case that this is not just a scientific issue this is a question of real human lives who god cares about and about the planet that god made and, and and maybe that's a way of almost shifting perceptions of how the church is seen from being this quite negative force to being something that's much more constructive. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I've, I feel really proud every time I see those photos of priests and nuns chaining themselves to various railings and being arrested. I just think, go, you know, go, good for you. I just think it's fantastic. And, and to know that those pictures are then going to be in the mainstream um, papers all across the country, I think it's a real witness, a really, really positive witness 
uh, to so many people. Yeah, and I think Christian organisations have got a really rich heritage of that, haven't they? Like the likes of Christian Aid and Tear Fund, um, you know, and even the the work that was related but not the same, but like the work that um, Tradecraft did in, in pioneering fair trade products. Yes, we've we've done it. We've been at the forefront, and I think it would be really nice to see the church continuing to push on that and continuing to campaign for justice and and to not, you know, to to be a voice like like you were saying earlier, Tim, a little bit that's a little bit more prophetic that does say, hang on, like there's a different way. We don't have to just pursue capitalist growth at all costs. We can, um, and we should be looking. Uh, wider than that if we're talking about human flourishing perhaps a little reminiscent of it was quite a while ago about 20 years ago kind of before almost before I was really aware of it but around the the turn of the millennium there was the big um, jubilee debt campaigns about cancelling the debt of of poorer countries in the developing world and that was primarily spearheaded I believe by Christian organizations and then kind of picked up as a as a social justice movement in the west more generally and I think a really helpful example again because the church is that one of those truly international organizations and there are christians in every country in africa and asia that we're talking about who have who are our brothers and sisters and we can amplify their voices and maybe this is another opportunity again where the church you know rather than having the climate conversation dominated by some kind of elite white mostly western men arguing among themselves we could say well look let's fly in a bishop from papua new guinea and talk about rising sea levels and the devastation that's causing or you know desertification in north africa and let's bring some a christian community there from ethiopia to come and, and well, let's and zoom them in story. tim let's zoom them in sorry sorry <laughs> <laughs> you're absolutely right megan we should not be flying people around <laughs> we should all sailing a boat like greta thunberg did across the atlantic to go to the un maybe they could sail over instead <laughs> but there's a real chance again for the church to say you know you think in the UK, people think of the church and they think of the stuffy vicars and rural Anglican stone falling down buildings. And actually, you guys know that the, the, the average, the median Christian is is a sub-Saharan woman in her nineteen in her in her 30s globally. Let's maybe it's not just a way of kind of burnishing our own image, but actually saying something quite profound about who the church is and what the church cares about and who makes up the church here and here in the, the kind of declining secularizing West. Yeah, and it's, I wonder what how you go about this outside of the sort of the big established churches like like the Church of England, because I, I'm aware that you know obviously the smaller denominations or the denominations that are less um, centrally structured, like um, Elam Church or the Assemblies of God or the Free Pentecostals, churches where there's no sort of central organisation, um, or big pension pots or you know denomination-wide policies on this or governance on that how do we go about like encouraging individual congregations across the country to re- to really do their bit as well and and uh, whether there is a a way that we could talk about it better within our churches on a day-to-day basis hmm. I mean there's lots of um charities like Arosha and Christian Aid who have got lots of resources I know and kind of projects that like checklists for churches to work through I know to kind of help them think you know have you thought about solar panels have you thought about rewilding your churchyard you know can you can you look for you know where you might be able to change your heating plan um so I guess there's lots of resources out there but I I agree it's certainly easier if you are something like the Church of England with all these professional full-time staff in in central HQ to figure this stuff out 
Um, though again, they've got a much larger footprint than Elim does to compensate and to work to work to eradicate. But there are some beautiful exa- some beautiful opportunities, I think, and examples of where the church has done this really well. Like I'm thinking about where where we I live down in Cornwall, so um, Cornwall, I think, because it's got the most coastline of any country in the uh, any county in the UK um has a very special relationship with the sea there's a lot of surfers here and as a result people care really a lot about the quality of the water about pollution and we have things like the Eden project so as if you live down in Cornwall you, it feels like a very sort of environmentally aware place to be um we also have a big presence of christian surfers and um you know there's a church near me that was an old methodist church that was revamped into um, it's in a, a surf hotspot um, right down on the beach. And for them, you know, being green um, is almost like it's part of their mission statement, but it would be almost unthinkable for them to operate in any other way because of where they are and who they are, because they're so closely associated with Christian surfers and the sea. Um, and so for them, it's a real sort of mission opportunity to have their own cafe that's really local and their solar panels on the roof and their garden that they get the local community involved in sort of planting and all those kinds of things. So there are some really beautiful, creative ways that, that I think church communities can use it as a real outreach and an example in the places that they're rooted. I was just going to say that's a really interesting point Emma and I think sometimes you know if you live somewhere where you're interacting with nature you know like when if you live near the sea for example and you you can see firsthand the the impacts of um you know climate breakdown or you know things like pollution or plastics and perhaps you're more inclined to um bring that into your theology a bit more in churches you know I'm just thinking about people who live in London you know central London where that isn't necessarily their experience and then how do you make how do you make that important and how do you make those links clear for people um who may not um understand it from that perspective you know because there's different ways of helping people to understand the same message isn't there you know we talked a bit about development and um and poverty um but there's also you know there's also the message around creation and what are we leaving for future generations and what are, what are, what are, what's our legacy going to be um for the world so it's it's sort of i mean i used to work for cafford and, and and in the comms team and we did a lot of work around what what are the messages that um are going to appeal to different groups you know um in order to get them on board with um making changes and campaigning and uh, around these issues of climate change so it's it's i think that's worth thinking about hmm it reminds me of a conversation I had a few years ago with a, a curate in the Church of England who was doing something really innovative in, I think it was in Bristol, where he had basically started as part of his curacy, his new church as based around a community garden, kind of like an allotment, really. And so on Sundays, that kind of Sunday worship would involve everyone coming and spending several hours digging and planting, and then they would break and have communion and and they would sing songs and they would hear talks, but it was all kind of like embedded in the earth. And the whole point was they would then finish each service by having a meal, cooking the food that they'd been growing together. And I said, oh, that sounds lovely. And he was like, well, it's not just a lovely, it's really, he says it's it's a kind of radical prophetic act because it's saying actually the way we live now, the kind of late capitalist era that has given us this climate crisis is unsustainable and so he says this church is really his church he hopes he believes he prays is going to be a kind of first fruits of what the church will look like in a kind of post climate crisis world which is much more kind of self-sustaining but again as you were saying Megan it's more about being rooted in the earth and about returning to the land and 
and our kind of urban lifestyle has got us very abstracted and separated out from creation and gotten the way that God has made, kind of made us to be. And so he was all like, there's so much richness in the theology about returning to the land and working the soil and cultivating, you know, that kind of Garden of Eden vibe and and the church as well as not. And it's kind of a byproduct that his church obviously doesn't have any carbon emissions because it doesn't have a proper building and doesn't do heating and lighting. But that's not really the point. The point is actually to get Christians gathered around the soil and the world and, and the earth and 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 reconnect to, to, the, crea- to the, the creation and then to the creator. Which I just thought was a really fascinating way of seeing a kind of different response to climate crisis, which isn't, you know, gluing yourself to a tube train in central London, but is about saying pioneering a different way of being, a different way of being Christians together. I'll try and put a link in the podcast description to try and remember what it's called. I can't, I've forgotten top of my head what its name is. One final uh, point I wouldn't be doing this right if I didn't ask the kind of devil's advocate journalistic question at the end. Well, some people will hear all this and say, isn't this a bit of a distraction? this virtue signaling this is this is uh taking our eye off the core task of the church which is about reaching the this broken world for the gospel its primary need is not to cut its carbon emissions but to get get right with god how how would you both respond to that argument when you come across it yeah i had a mate who used to um argue every time i talked to her about recycling that it didn't matter because jesus was coming back soon and he would restore the earth so that that always went down well we used to have have some fun debates about that (laughs) um (laughs) yeah I mean it does come up every now and again I think I think we had a we ran an opinion piece a couple of years ago now during the Glasgow um, environment summits a church sort of put a banner to that to that extent on the on the side of the building and it obviously created a lot of conversation um I think my point I think my view on that is I don't I just don't see it as an either or I don't think you know that we have to say because we need to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ we shouldn't also live um in a way that we understand to be godly and for a lot of people that involves stewarding creation well and looking after the people that are the poorest um, on the planet and if and if you understand and believe that those two things are interlinked for me it's it's about integrity for me it's an integrity issue I would say like I don't you know don't want to be a church where people say I, I'm not listening to the message about Jesus because you might be saying this about God um, but all of these things you do to me are barriers um, so for me, I, I think it's about sort of living the life, walking the walk, I guess, as well as talking the talk. And I don't see them as a conflict. Yeah, I think um, I just wonder whether some of those, some of the scriptures, uh, you know, for example, the book of Revelation has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. And I think you can read those verses and and sort of feel that that the world is all going to be burned up and it's all going to be destroyed um, and then we're going to sort of heaven will be created in this other place, <clears throat> this better place. But I think N.T. Wright's done some work around this, hasn't he? And he's kind of helped people understand that it's not so much about a burning away and a, and a destruction of what we have, but actually a renewal of what we have. And I think if we understand it in those terms, then we want to be part of that renewal process. We want to be part of bringing the kingdom uh, on earth Um and also, I think that anything that you do that harms your neighbour, uh, you know, we, we're told in, in in the Bible, you know, not to do anything that harms our neighbour, to love our neighbour as ourselves. And anything we do that harms our neighbour, we should be taking seriously and um, trying to change. So I think 
when you look at that, you, you know, it seems like climate change is this macro issue, um, but actually we can do things in our own personal lives that make a difference to our neighbour, even though we can't see our neighbour necessarily. But I think when we understand it in those terms, um, that theology becomes a bit more real. Hmm. And I think one of the most encouraging signs for me over the last kind of 10, 15 years in the church is that you just you increasingly rarely hear the whole kind of, well, God is coming back, he's going to burn it all up, so let's, you know, drive your four by four and it doesn't make a difference. Um, because I think, as you say, people have actually done the theological work to realise the kind of errors around that interpretation of some of those scriptures. You know, I never forget my my vicar would mention almost every other sermon when when it says, behold, I'm making all things new in Revelation. There are two Greek words for new and he doesn't say neos, which means brand new. He says kainos, which means renewed. And so it's the idea that actually what we do with the creation now, it's not like this is Mark 1 and God's going to wipe the slate clean and start from scratch, that actually this new creation is going to be a, a perfection of what already exists and therefore what we do to this world really, really matters, even if we do believe, as we do, that Jesus is coming back. So, yeah, I, th- I think really encouraged, actually, that that argument, it feels like it's mostly died out. You know, 10, 15 years ago, this conversation would have been dominated by trying to rebut, you know, climate scepticism and, and those kind of theological cases. And I think now it's m- the conversation is much more around, you know, how hard should we go on this and should we divest or should we engage? But the fundamental question of, you know, are Christians called to to seek climate justice, I feel has been mostly resolved and that can only be a good thing. Amen to that. That's it for this week's Premier Christian Newscast. But if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do leave us a review on whatever podcast app you use. And why not also tell a friend about the show? Don't forget to also subscribe to the podcast on your phone or tablet to ensure that you receive each episode automatically sent to your device week by week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Premier Christian Newscast. 